Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day, for this um, earth you've called us to dwell on, to take care of, and to flourish in and be fruitful and multiply. And we thank you for multiplying your witness in our lives and for uh, the good news that we can proclaim and the sometimes hard things that we can proclaim. Thank you for your word, even when it's a hard one. And please shape us with that word and make us obedient to your will, uh, to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in a series. You got the picture? Picture's there? Good. Jeremiah is one of our uh, rascals, renegades, and radicals. Uh, don't know what those words fully mean, but I'm going to try to uh, interpret Jeremiah's life through them, and uh, we'll uh, talk about each of the three. It is um, commonly believed that Jeremiah was a bullfrog, which in fact is not true. I did some research, <laughs> and I found out that he's not a bullfrog. But he is a good friend of ours, as he leaves us um, some awesome words, uh, an awesome book, actually the longest book in the Bible. Uh, by word count um, in our English Bibles. The Hebrew text, uh, I think it's 1 Kings and 2 Kings are combined. It's a longer book. Psalms has more chapters, but fewer words. Jeremiah is now the longest book. And so if you're going to preach on it and you have to read the whole thing to get the whole context, you have extra work um, for future reference. Um, but it's also a hard book. Some of you might know Jeremiah 29.11. You know, I have a bookmark or something like that that has it on there. And that is an important glimmer of hope, kind of a silver lining in the dark cloud, which is most of the prophetic words in Jeremiah. Because he preached in a time, and this is why he's a rascal, when he was um, in Jerusalem, which is uh, in the south of Israel area, uh, in the land of Judah or Judea, and they were being bad people. They were being wicked, especially the leaders in the land. They were breaking the covenant with God, worshiping other gods. Each town, Jeremiah says, had their own God. And if each town has its own God, then you don't have to worry about what's going on in the other towns, about caring for people over there, because you kind of have your own thing going on. You're just concerned about your own family, your own tribe, your own kin, and um, you have this kind of more of a contractual relationship with that God, that false God, that idol that you're worshiping, and if you give it some sort of sacrifices, it will give you prosperity, and then um, you actually don't have to do anything else in terms of caring for your neighbors. Whereas the God of Israel, the real God, the God who is God, against all the other false gods, he's God of the whole universe, God of all creation, God of every person, and all people are his children. And so when we're called into relationship with him, we're also called in relationship with each other, caring especially for those whom God cares for, which in um, the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament both testify to the fact that God cares most about and defends the rights of the, the needy, the oppressed, those who are orphaned. An orphan doesn't just mean those who've lost their parents, although it was definitely something that happened to Jeremiah's day in a time when there's great wars, famines, plagues. Um, but orphans can be those around us who are um, without anyone to care for them, without a community. And, uh, and then he also talks about widows, 
and widows, once again, isn't just those who've lost their husband, but you can lose your identity in other ways because in those days, the wife was identified and she was supported only through her husband. Those who have had their lives fall out from underneath them and they have nothing else and they rely on the community for their support. And then strangers or those uh, refugees, you might think of, immigrants in, uh, in your land, and the people who were reading the text of Jeremiah, they knew all too well what it was to be a refugee or uh, a stranger in another land, whether it was back in Egypt when they were the slaves in Egypt or in exile in Babylon when they stayed there for 70 years without um, having any sort of real voice in the culture of their own. But um, these are the ones God cares for. And so that's what Jeremiah proclaims. He says, this is who God cares for. This is who we should be caring for. And he speaks against the authorities of his day. And he has tough words for them. I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit throughout the text, um, but I'll mention which chapters we're in. If you want to scribble them down, look at them later, or just read the whole book later, read the whole Bible. It's a good book. Um, <laughs> the good book. Anyway, chapter 7 is where we'll start. And uh, because we're in church, and because I'm considered a pastor, I think it's important to start with his critique of the pastors of his day, the priests, the prophets, and uh, the elders who were in charge of God's temple. And God called Jeremiah, sent him to the temple. Chapter 7, the beginning of it, I'll be kind of uh, paraphrasing some of it, reading through the first uh, seven verses or so. Told him to stand at the Lord's temple and proclaim, this is the Lord's word. All you in Judah who enter the gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, says. Improve your conduct and your actions, and I will dwell with you in this place. Don't trust in lies. <laughs> the lie that we can rely on this true statement. This is the Lord's temple. The Lord's temple. The Lord's temple. Nothing can stop that from being true. Because this is what was believed in those days, that the temple was where God dwelled. And God did say that. He would make his dwelling place there. Um, and it was Solomon who built the temple. That's David's son, about 400 years before Jeremiah's day. And it was trusted that because God lived in our city, in the center of our city, in the temple, nothing would ever overtake this city. Because God's there. God's not going to let his house be destroyed. But at this point, Jeremiah is saying, no, not, God's not going to dwell here unless if we truly reform our ways and our actions. If you treat each other justly, if you stop taking advantage of the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, we, we mentioned before, don't shed the blood of the innocent in this place or go after other gods to your own ruin. Only then will I dwell with you in this place and in the land I gave long ago to your ancestors for all time. And Jeremiah mixes, he mixes prose, this is what we're reading here, and then poetry, which is just in the next chapter, chapter 8. Uh, look at a, a few verses there. Uh, the poetry that he um, pens, or actually more so spoke, and kind of taught others in a way to sing, was a way of shaping an alternative imagination to the one that was pushed on them through the centralized authority of his day, the PR for the, uh, the king and the, the temple. So he was having to kind of speak underground and kind of come up from grassroots in order to um, offer an alternative vision of what God had for them. 
So in this poem, which is a rebuke or a critique of the temple authorities, he says, how can you say, this is chapter 8, verse 8, we are wise, we possess the Lord's instruction, that's the word for the law, God's the first five books of the Bible, we possess the Bible, we do. But the lying pen of the scribes has surely distorted it. And you can wonder how, if we have distorted God's word in any ways, if we have used it to our own gain at other people's expense. Uh, there are verses in the Bible that talk about slaves being obedient to their masters, which were used during uh, the time when slavery was um, legal in the United States and other places in the world to keep slaves down and to um, in force a system of oppression. We have to be careful how we read God's word. Let it teach us how to read it. The wise, he says in verse 9, will be shamed and shocked when they are caught. Look, they have rejected the Lord's word. What kind of wisdom is that? They should be ashamed of their detestable practices, but they have no shame. They don't even blush. So I will put an end to them, declares the Lord. Now listen for uh, similarities between Jesus' poems and, or sorry, Jeremiah's poems and Jesus' uh, parables. There are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree, only withered leaves. They have squandered what I have given them. And that's what actually is a very similar thing that's going on when Jesus told uh, parables about um, squandering wealth away or not doing well with the talents that they were uh, entrusted. And then also the sign of the fig tree. You might remember the disciples and Jesus were going up to Jerusalem and they saw a fig tree and Jesus said, oh, there's some fruit on this fig tree, I hope. And there was no fruit. So he cursed it and it withered it once. Um, the fig tree there may be representative of the temple. And Jesus also prophesied against the temple in Jerusalem. He stood in front of Jerusalem, which was built on a mountain, and he said, if you just have faith, disciples, when you pray, you can tell this mountain to go be cast into the ocean, and it will be. And why would the, uh, the mountain Jerusalem want to be cast into the ocean? Well, the temple was corrupt, so was the throne that was there in Jeremiah's day. By uh, Jesus' day, it was a different sort of throne, but also quite corrupt uh, vassal kings put there in place by the, uh, by the Romans. Here we have a vassal king, Jehoiakim, on the throne in, verse, or in chapter 22 in Jeremiah. So he critiqued the priests and the prophets in the temple. Now he's going to critique the kings. And he critiqued pretty much all the kings that lived in his day, although King Josiah was a pretty good one uh, until the end when um, he got a little bit arrogant and went out in battle and died in battle, which is a sure sign that he was not necessarily on God's side. It's important for kings that God is on their side. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see them trying various practices in order to ensure God's on their side. They bring the Ark of the Lord down to the battle in, uh, in different places, in Samuel or in um, Joshua, and they say, okay, let's uh, make sure that God's with us. And then when God's not on their side, the Ark actually gets captured by the Philistines in one place. But here we have to remember that it's not so important that God's on our side but that we're on God's side. 
And that's what Jeremiah says to the kings. So in uh, chapter 22, again, speaking very similar words he spoke to the priests. He says, listen to the Lord's words, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you and your advisors, those with you. This is what the Lord proclaims. Do what is just and right. Rescue the oppressed from the power of the oppressor. Don't exploit or mistreat the refugee, the orphan, or the widow. Don't spill the blood of the innocent in this place. If you obey this command, then kings will occupy this throne. But if you ignore these words, this palace will become a ruin. And specifically about Jehoiakim, king, um, one of the worst kings toward the end of Judah's life, Jeremiah speaks this poem in verse 13 of chapter 22. How terrible for Jehoiakim, who builds his house with corruption and his upper chambers with injustice, working his countrymen for nothing, refusing to give them their wages. He says, I'll build a grand palace for myself with huge upper chambers, ornate windows, cedar paneling, and rich red decor. Is this what makes you a king, having more cedar than anyone else? Didn't your father eat and drink and still do what was just and right, then it went well for him. He defended the rights of the poor and the needy, and then it went well. Isn't that what it means to know me, declares the Lord. So if you want to know God, you know those whom God cares for, which is the, the poor and the needy. But, Jeremiah says, you set your heart and your eyes on nothing but unjust gain. You spilled the blood of the innocent, you practice cruelty and oppress your subjects. And so he's going to die a gruesome death. So these are uh, not the words that we're used to reading on the bookmark, Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, and these are the words, like I said, of a rascal who also had these signs. He took a pot that, um, in the presence of everyone, and he took it out just outside of Jerusalem. And he said, see this pot? This is Jerusalem. And he smashed it down on the ground. And the pieces were shattered everywhere. And that's really what happened when the Babylonian army finally conquered and, and laid to waste in the city in 587 B.C. Um, another thing he did before that was take uh, the, uh, an oxen yoke, you know, the thing that a, an, you put on the back of an oxen, they carry the cart around. Well, he put that on himself. And he said, see this? This is what we're all going to be subject to the Babylonian um, captivity, and we're going to be under their rule, just like an oxen is under the rule of the yoke. And then another prophet, a false prophet, took, came along and broke it. And breaking it was a foolish thing to do, because soon that prophet actually, his, uh, his own life was broken. But um, Jeremiah said, no, not a wooden yoke, but a, a yoke of iron is going to be in place. And that's really what it was for them when they were in captivity. Captivity um, is the exile that you may have heard about in the Bible, uh, and it was about 70 years that they spent away from their land. And the reason they were sent there is because they had broken the covenant with God. And the covenant with God, it's uh, an important relationship. You might know uh, marriage is often referred to as a covenant. Um, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. A contract, you may have ways out of a contract. A, co a covenant is forever, and it's a promise. And it requires mutual fidelity. Um, Lauren and I, we are uh, promised to each other in the covenant of marriage, and it's the best. And something even better has happened, which is Charlotte, our uh, daughter. And that's, um, I could 
draw a metaphor for how caring for Charlotte is one of the ways that we actually care for each other. The um, way that God entrusts Israel, or God's people, us as well, with caring for the least of these, although Charlotte's not the least, she's the greatest of these, but um, just go with me. Um, it's uh, an important task, and to not do that is to actually breach the covenant. So if I all of a sudden stopped caring for Charlotte, I neglected her, if I didn't feed her or uh, clothe her or put diapers on her or whatever, you know, and, and just let her do her own thing, but still, you know, showed her off to my friends and said, look it, I'll make her giggle and, you know, she's so cute, um, then I would be, you know, committing a horrible crime and also, at the same time, say I was being, um, uh, practicing infidelity or adultery or, you know, cheating on Lauren. This is what Israel was doing with God at that time. They were neglecting those whom they were entrusted to care for, the children that God had given them to care for, and um, also they were neglecting their God, worshiping other idols or worshiping idols and false gods. And so they needed to be removed from the the place where God had put them, which was the land. Uh, So I would be kicked out of the house, right, if I was doing those things. I'd be gone, and that's what happened to them. And then the land also received rest because all of that, I was um, also abusing our house, drawing on the walls and stuff like that. And Charlotte, she's an angel, but I... I um, so that's, you know, sort of an image for understanding why God would want to kick God's own chosen people out of their land. It's not that uh, God is so cold and indifferent about his people, it's actually that he cares so much. So if we see wrath in the Old Testament, I can almost guarantee you, just look harder, and you'll probably see on the other side of it, compassion and love for those whom uh, were being neglected before this. And, um, and then that definitely carries forward in the New Testament as well. But what did we cover so far? He's a rascal, he's a renegade, he tried to run away to go well, actually not run away. He tried to go check on some land of his own in the, in the area of Benjamin, just north of the city of Jerusalem. But it was stopped at the gates. And they said, oh, you're trying to desert us and go to the uh, Babylonian army and so you can fight against us. Because he had been prophesying everyone should just give themselves over to the Babylonians. And yet that wasn't to say and then fight against Jerusalem. It was just to say uh, just, there's no point in fighting them. But he was thrown in prison for this. Eventually, he was released, um, but he, again, was uh, arrested a different time and put into stocks and put on public display, shamed, humiliated. Actually, for the very letter Jeremiah 29.11 is part of, and you can read that whole chapter. It's a really good chapter in the Bible. Um, You have a response from people who are in Babylon Jeremiah is saying, get comfortable. You're going to be there a long time. And they say, uh, no, we're only going to be here two years. We're, it's going to be quick. So um, don't worry about it, folks. Uh, and they send a letter back to Jerusalem. And they say, who's this Jeremiah guy? He's a madman. Arrest him and you know, make, a, make a showing of him. Punish him because he can't be saying this. It's going to decrease our national morale and and people aren't going to think that we're going to be uh, a great nation again if they think that we're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And so uh, he was even punished for sending the very letter that has those hopeful words in it. Um, And then uh, the last punishment I want to mention was when uh, the chief 
uh, advisors of the king, King Jehoiakim. He was really one of the worst kings. Um, oh, sorry, it was King Zedekiah after Jehoiakim. Um, they were both horrible kings, but Zedekiah was super, like, unsure of all of his decisions. He was wavering this way and that. And first his advisors say, Jeremiah, he's a bad guy. He's telling everyone to betray us and go to the Babylonians. And so we got to lock him up. And they say, uh, let us do this. We're going to throw him in the cistern, and he's going to stay there forever and die. Okay, good. Yeah, I can't stop you. Do whatever you have to do, the king says. So he does it. And um, then Jeremiah is sitting there in the bottom of a cistern. We talked about Joseph last week, right? He went in the bottom of a pit, and he probably cried out to God. And then he actually was saved, sold into slavery right after that. Um, but his life was spared from this pit. And there's different psalms that talk about being in miry muck. Um, and being in a pit, being in darkness, being alone doesn't have to be just being in the bottom of a cistern or a well. Uh, it can be, for some of us, in the middle of a big crowd at school when you know our best friend makes fun of us and we don't feel um, loved, we don't feel supported, we don't feel like anyone's faithful to us. We have no friends. So this is a lament that Jeremiah prays at one time in his life. He's prayed a lot of laments throughout his life. At least uh, five are recorded in the book of Jeremiah. There's also a whole book called Lamentations, which has a lot of his own laments, most likely, and then maybe some of the lament psalms in the book of Psalms, of which about a third are laments, are from him. Um, and so he knew how to complain well. And it's an important thing to do, as James was praying earlier, we have a God who listens to our prayers. In chapter 20, um, and I'm going to read through this whole thing if you want to read along. Chapter 20 of Jeremiah. Uh, it's the verses 7 through 18. It's kind of long, but just bear with me. The, um, the words that Jeremiah prayed are not easy to stomach, but listen to what he says. Lord, you enticed me, and I was taken in. You were too strong for me, and you prevailed. Now I'm laughed at all the time. Everyone mocks me. Every time I open my mouth, I cry out and say, violence and destruction. The Lord's word has brought me nothing but insult and injury constantly. I thought, mm, I'll forget him. I'll no, no longer speak his name. But there's an intense fire in my heart, trapped in my bones, and I'm drained trying to contain it, un unable to do it. I hear many whispering, panic lurks everywhere. Proclaim, yes, let's proclaim it ourselves. All my friends are waiting for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed. Then we'll prevail against him and get our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a strong defender. Therefore, my oppressors will stumble and not prevail. They will be disgraced by their own failures. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. The Lord of heavenly forces tests the righteous and discerns the heart and the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them, for I have committed my case to you. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. He has rescued the need, needy from the clutches of evildoers. Cursed be the day that I was born. May the day my mother gave me birth not be blessed. Cursed be the one who delivered the news to my father. You have a son. 
filling him with joy. May the bearer of that news be like the cities that the Lord destroyed without mercy. May he hear screams in the morning and battle cries at noon because he didn't kill me in, my, in the womb and let my mother become my grave, her womb pregnant forever. Why was I ever born when all I see is suffering and misery and all my days are filled with shame? It's a pretty sad song. Um, and he's, like I said, singing this potentially from the bottom of a pit. Or you might even think of the ones who were entrusted with um, writing down and repeating these words when they were in exile and then praying them there. And that they're cursing the day that they were born, that they had to live in, in exile. But there is a confession of trust right in the middle of this complaint. The Lord is with me like a strong defender. And that's what the people in exile knew, that God had actually not completely betrayed them, but kept the remnant alive for himself. So the oppressors, whether for Jeremiah, it was actually the people in Jerusalem, especially the leaders there, they will not prevail, but they will stumble. Or when you're in exile in Babylon, or wherever you are, and you are experiencing uh, a similar thing or standing in solidarity with those experiencing some sort of oppression themselves, you know that those who are oppressing you, because God cares about you, they will stumble and not prevail. So the confession of God's goodness turns into a praise. And that's how laments normally end. It goes from a complaint to a confession of God's goodness to a petition for help, and then a praise. And this could be a good uh, model for our own prayer life. It's okay to complain to God. God is listening. Um, but it's also good to remember and remind God, God's self, remind him that he is good and should be good to us. And then turn that into praise because we trust that that will happen. But then Jeremiah ends with an odd addition of um, cursed be the day that I was born. He had a dark life, and um, he was the weeping prophet. That's what that, uh, that, you don't have to put the image back up, but that's kind of what was depicted there in his face. Um, the, uh, the life that he led was hard, and the life of the, uh, the ones in exile was hard as well. But there was one promise that God had given to Jeremiah and to those who listened to his words, and it was that they would survive. So even when he was in the bottom of a pit, God was there for him. And he thinks he's about to die um, because there was no bread left in the city. No one was feeding him. There was nothing to eat. Uh, and he's just there to die. But then all of a sudden there's a light from above. Um, and they opened the top of the cistern. And he looked and he saw a, a figure standing there saying, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we've come to release you. We've come to save you. And so they throw down some ropes they even threw down some old uh, rags and clothes to put between the ropes and his armpits so they could lift him up and, you know, kind of be gentle with him in that way. He was an old man by that point, been prophesying for over 40 years. And uh, a guy named Ebed Melech, he was a, an Ethiopian eunuch who lived in the king's palace and served the king, but he couldn't handle what the guys had done to Jeremiah, throwing him in that pit, and so he went to go save him. And I had permission from the king, actually, to do so because, like I said, the king was so wavering in his 
his ways. And so he was preserved, Jeremiah's life was preserved through Abed-Melech's faithfulness, him being a faithful friend. And then um, Jeremiah had a word from the Lord for him, just as the city was being destroyed. Pretty awesome. He, uh, it's kind of crazy because, you know, like the walls are crumbling as he's saying these words. And he, God sends Jeremiah to go find Abed-Melech. And he says, I'm about to fulfill my words concerning this city for harm and not for good, and you will witness it. But, declares the Lord, I will rescue you, and you won't be handed over to those you dread. I will defend you. You won't die in battle. You will escape with your life because you have trusted in me, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah and those who stood in solidarity with him and those whom God cares for, um, the oppressed, uh, these ones were preserved. And then that's how they were able to continue to persevere in exile. And they had to totally reshape their understandings of God and themselves out there. They had a temple in Jerusalem. They had a throne there that they thought would be forever. And they had this high city, this protected place. And they had none of these things in Jerusalem. The only things that they had were each other. And part of this book, not the whole thing by that point, and um, a God who had promised to be with them. So that's what they did. They just gathered in groups, potentially like this, and they started remembering the words that God had given them and um, caring for each other in the ways that that God had called them to do. And they cared for the ones who were there who were orphans, the ones who were widows, the ones, everyone there of of, um, their tribe were refugees, but there were also others from the Babylonian Empire that they were caring for. You also see this same tendency and this same kind of posture, uh, lifestyle in Jesus and in his disciples. But it's not an easy lifestyle, and that's what uh, Jesus warns his disciples in um, Matthew chapter 10 when he sends them out on their mission, which was a a troubling time, a time very like Jeremiah's. Um, Actually, Jesus is compared with Jeremiah because, like I said earlier, he did pronounce that the temple, Jerusalem, would fall. He he said that the, the temple, no stone would be left upon another, and it did come true. This happened in 587 B.C., just after Jeremiah's time or during his time, and then just after Jesus' time in 70 A.D., it fell again, and it hasn't been rebuilt fully since. So um, he knew, and Jesus was a prophet, telling of disaster coming, but in the midst of it, he told them to persevere. So here in uh, chapter 10 of Matthew, well, I don't know, a third of the way down, he tells them in verse 17, watch out for people. They will hand you over to councils, just like Jeremiah. They will beat you in their synagogues, and they will haul you in front of governors and even kings because of me. But there you may give your testimony to them and all the nations. Whenever they hand you over, don't worry about what you're going to say because it will be given to you at that moment. You are my prophets. You aren't doing the talking, but the spirit of my father is doing the talking through you. I added the prophets part because he compares them to prophets, saying that um, those who receive a prophet receive a prophet's reward. But he doesn't actually call them straight-up prophets here. Um, but it is pretty clear by what they're called to do 
proclaim against all the nations about Jesus and, um, and how they're called to live. They were called to live kind of on the margins like prophets were and in solidarity with those who are on the margins. So um, as Jesus himself was sent by God to the cross, because of the sin of his people, because of the, um, the corruption in Jerusalem, in the temple, and on the, uh, the other ways that um, the Herods and others were ruling in the day, that they were neglecting those whom God cared for most, and that they even neglected his son. There needed to be some sort of um, judgment. Now, the judgment did come through the destruction of the temple again, but it also came through Jesus himself. And people weren't going to be exiled, but Jesus was going to die. And instead of uh, seeing it just as Jesus being taken to the cross by the Romans uh, at the request of the chief priests and the Pharisees and those in Jerusalem, it was God sending his son there and then allowing him to die there. But of course, death didn't have the last word. Death was conquered. The grave was conquered. Death has lost its sting. As Paul reminds us, and the resurrection happened three days later. And the resurrection is that that's the hope that we all have that um, is not something just to believe in that happened with Jesus, but it is a true statement about what Jesus has done to death. The forces of death, the forces of destruction, those that would neglect the least of these in society and amongst us, they um, are given the hope that Despite all of this, Jesus will be with us, as he says at the very end of the book of Matthew. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. And we look forward to his returning as well. As we're going to be turning to the tables now, the, the Lord's Supper, um, we're actually participating in a prophetic act ourselves in which we declare Jesus' death. Yes, he died, but we also declare that he's coming again that the powers of death and destruction, they don't have the last word. And that those whom um, God cares for will be cared for. And that we are called into solidarity with Jesus in his suffering alongside us um, in partaking in his broken body in the bread and his shed blood in the wine or the, the juice. As we dip and eat that together, we're also being in solidarity and reconciled with each other and those who may not be here, but um, are in our everyday lives that are suffering some sort of pain, oppression, hardship, neglect, we are also um, in solidarity with them. And God is in solidarity with us, present with us, as he said he would be in the body of Christ and in his blood. So let's do that together. And um, if you'd like, after we take communion, you can pray with each other. You can come up to the cross. Someone will be here to pray with you, worship together. And the band will come up, be playing a couple of songs. Um, and this is an op opportunity to uh, confess to God what's on your heart. It might be something that you're struggling with. It might be something that you know someone else is struggling with. Or um, you might even cry out for different neglect that you've witnessed uh, in, in people's lives or, um, you know, pray for refugees, pray for uh, prisoners that um, have not yet been released. Um, 
Jesus did come to proclaim release to the captives and good news to the poor. And uh, we have a lot to learn still about what it means to uh, receive that good news. And uh, we do that as we, um, we come here every week. And so I'm so blessed to be part of this family. And we're blessed to partake in a meal together in the Lord's presence. Amen.